Well, good morning, everyone. Happy 4th of July weekend. I'm glad that you're here this morning. For those of you I don't know, my name's Todd. I'm the lead pastor. I'm so glad that you're uh, here today with us. Um, how many of you uh, yesterday saw some fireworks? Where you raise your hand this morning? Awesome. Very good. After the storm, right? <laughs> how many of you stayed home? Like, you know, like I'm just going to stay home and watch it on TV. You smart people. That's awesome. How many of you went to see fireworks and didn't see any? Right here, all right, great, with an 8-year-old and an 11-year-old. That was fun last night. And then I went home and walked the dog, and I heard him going off at 1045, so that was fun. <laughs> oh, my goodness, what do I have to complain about, though? Uh, I'm glad you're here this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Judges, uh, chapter. We're going to be in chapter 7 and 8 uh, this morning, and uh, we're going to be taking a look at a fantastic uh, man in the Bible um, who displayed a tremendous amount of courage. The series that we have been in all throughout the summer and will continue. Somebody asked me that in between the services. Are we going to continue in this? Uh, yes, we are going to continue uh, in July. Uh, I'll be with you for the whole month of July. And we've taken a look at uh, five different men from the Bible. And in July, we're going to be taking a look at women. So ladies, your time's coming, okay? Because you displayed tremendous courage in the Word of God as well. And so we're taking a look today at another character that displayed tremendous courage and, and digging in and trying to find out what we can learn uh, from these biblical characters, from God's Word about our level of courage um, in life. Yesterday, we celebrated uh, the 239th um, birthday of the United States of America. And uh, we call it the 4th of July or Independence Day. Uh, a couple years ago, I got an email. I had traveled uh, to England, to the UK, uh, twice over the last 10 years or so. And I have some family there and uh, visited with uh, my cousin, Stuart Cullen. And uh, that was, that's fun. He's uh, just a fantastic guy, an amazing time over there. But I got to know some people at a church that we were working with over there. And uh, one year on the 4th of July, uh, I got a message uh, from a friend there, and he said, Happy Trader's Day, you ungrateful colonist. <laughs> so that was a good 4th of July. And I just responded, and I said, scoreboard. So anyway, yep, anyway. Uh, and uh, we have some fun. When I'm over there, we have fun with that because they, they you know, I mean, they just think it's ridiculous, you know, that, like, you know, we celebrate this, uh, this time in our period. Uh, but... You know, it's really interesting because the, the men and women um, who were a part of the events that took place that led up to America's birth sacrificed so much for our freedom, didn't they? And it wasn't England's fault. It wasn't the UK's fault. There was a tyrannical leader that was in place during that period of history. And uh, King George was a tyrannical uh, leader who suppressed the colonists and suppressed uh, our ability to worship and our ability to make money and keep most of it, and they were suppressing everything about this new country, this new land that had been discovered in this couple centuries leading up to that period of time. And so on the 4th of July, on our Independence Day, um, we celebrate those who sacrificed uh, before us to give us the freedom that we have, the ability to walk where we want, to drive where we want, to uh, choose the career of our choosing um, to worship together, to gather here in this place and worship. And so today, not just because it's the 4th of July and Independence Day, or Trader's Day as he called it, um, today uh, I want to begin um, by really setting up what we're going to talk about today by reading a portion of 
a, an author who wrote about the 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence. And this author wrote this back in the 1990s. His name is Gary Hildreth. And he wrote a little bit of the story of what happened to these men once they signed the Declaration of Independence. You know, you realize, I don't know, you may, may or may not know this, the Declaration of Independence was put together by Thomas Jefferson and four other men over the course of about six weeks in 1776, about a year after the first kind of um, war broke out here in America that really prompted the, the Revolutionary War. And over the course of those six weeks, um, on July the 2nd, 1776, the, the Continental Congress actually met together and, and voted uh, for us becoming our own country. And uh, John Adams said that July 2nd would go down as the greatest day in the history of these United States. And it ended up being July 4th because that was the day that two men signed the Declaration of Independence. It took us almost a month to get all the signatures. And so by August the 2nd, 1776, we had our full Declaration of Independence with John Hancock's signature and everybody else's on there. And so we have this great document that gives us freedom here in the United States. And so we're going to set up today talking about the freedom that we can have spiritually when we have courage in God by talking about these men who had courage. L listen to Gary Hildreth's description of what happened to these 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence. He calls this the price they paid. Five signers of those 56 were captured by British, the British as traitors and tortured before they died. Twelve had their homes ransacked and burned. Two lost their sons in the Revolutionary Army. Another had two sons captured. Nine of the 56 fought and died from wounds or hardships resulting from the Revolutionary War. The men signed this document, and they pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. What kind of men were they, he writes? 24 were lawyers and jurists, 11 were merchants, 9 were farmers and large plantation owners. All were men of means, and they were well-educated. But they signed the Declaration of Independence, knowing full well that the penalty could be death if they were captured. They knew that going in. Carter Braxton of Virginia, a wealthy planter and trader, he saw his ships swept from the sea by the British Navy. He sold his home and property to pay his debts, and he died in rags. Thomas McKean was so hounded by the British that he was forced to move his family almost constantly. He served in the Congress without pay, and his family was kept in hiding. His possessions were taken from him, and poverty was his reward. Vandals or soldiers or both looted the property of Ellery, Clymer, Hall, Walton, Gwinnett, Hayward, South Carolinian, Rutledge, and Middleton, another, uh, a few other South Carolinians there. Uh, all of these uh, were van vandals or soldiers looted all of their property. Perhaps one of the most inspiring examples of undaunted resolution was at the Battle of Yorktown. Thomas Nelson Jr. was returning from Philadelphia to become governor of Virginia, and he joined General George Washington just outside of Yorktown, that famous battle that really began to end the Revolutionary War. He then noted that British General Cornwallis had taken over the Nelson home to become the British headquarters there in Yorktown. But the Patriots were directing their artillery fire all over the town except for right there in the vicinity of Nelson's home. And so he asked, why are they not firing at my home, knowing that that's the headquarters? 
He asked that question, and the soldiers replied, out of respect to you, sir, we won't fire at your home. So Nelson quietly urged General Washington to open fire, and he himself stepped forward to the nearest cannon, aimed it at his own home, and fired. The other guns joined in, and the Nelson home was destroyed. He died bankrupt. Francis Lewis's Long Island home was looted and gutted. His home and properties were destroyed. His wife was thrown into a damp, dark prison cell without a bed. Health ruined. Mrs. Lewis soon died from the effects of the confinement. The Lewis's sons would later die in British captivity as well. New Jersey's Richard Stockton, after rescuing his wife and children from advancing British troops, was betrayed by a loyalist, imprisoned, beaten, and nearly starved. He returned an invalid to find his home, also gutted, his library and papers all burned, and he too never recovered, dying in 1781, just a few years before the war ended, a broken man. William Ellery of Rhode Island, who marveled, that he had seen only undaunted resolution in the face of his co-signers also had his home burned. When the British seized New York, homes of Philip Livingston, he sold uh, the home of Philip Livingston, he sold off everything and he gave the money to the revolution. He died in 1778. Arthur Middleton, Edward Rutledge, and Thomas Hayward, they all went home here to South Carolina to fight. And in the British invasion there, here in the South, Hayward was wounded, and all three of them were captured. As he rotted in a prison ship in St. Augustine, Hayward's plantation was raided, buildings burned, and his wife, who witnessed it all, died. Other Southerners signed, uh, Southern signers suffered the same fate. Such were the stories, and I've skipped many of them, and sacrifices of the American Revolution. They were not wild-eyed, rabble-rousing ruffians. They were soft-spoken men of means and education. They had security, but they valued liberty even more. Standing tall, straight, and unwavering, they pledged for the support of this declaration. declaration we firm, put our firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, and they mutually pledged together to become a free nation. These men during the American Revolution knew that they were potentially signing their lives away, their fortunes away, and they did it anyway. They had tremendous courage in the face of unimaginable fear and a strong enemy. They stood strong for what they believed in. They stood strong for what was right, for what is right. And they stood up to a tyrannical government that at that time was doing the unimaginable here in what became the United States of America. It's really remarkable what they went through. Considering the fact that most experts believe that the colonists, these patriots, were outnumbered on their own soil, four to one, at any given time during the Revolutionary War. They were outnumbered four to one, yet we won, yet we still have our freedom. And God's hand was on this country, and God's hand was on us, those of us who have freedom today. And this story, these stories of these men um, and their lives and how they fell apart in the face of, of unimaginable fear and strong enemies highlights the courage that you and I need, not just to stand for what we believe is right for our country, but to stand for what is right according to the word of God and in our own lives. And today I, I realize that a lot of you, as I um, give you this message that I prepared uh, weeks ago, 
Um, we'll be thinking of the national debate that we have in a lot of different areas, and I think some of that can be applied there. But I want to make sure that you and I both avoid applying it just to that. And I want to make sure that we apply the word of God to our own lives. Because in reality, standing strong really from God's word means standing strong spiritually. And making sure that our soul is taken care of. Making sure that our lives with Christ is furthered. And so as we talk today, as we take a look at this fantastic character from the Old Testament, I want to make sure that you and I listen and find out and hear from God what he wants us to do as we face some of our greatest fears and some of our strongest enemies as well. So Judges chapter 7. Now to properly understand this story before we dive in and take a look at our text this morning, I want to give you a little bit of context for what's happening. This is the nation of Israel after the Exodus, but before the kings came on to the scene. It was about 11 or 1,200 years before Jesus came to the earth. And so Israel, the Jewish people, were going through a period of time when God used judges um, to lead them spiritually. And so these judges would help correct uh, the nation of Israel. They would help like look out for the nation of Israel. They largely did what the prophets did, um, you know, several uh, millennium later. Um, they did during this period of God, time. They were God's mouthpiece to the Jewish people. And so you had a series of judges. And the one that we're going to look at today is one of the very last judges in the nation of Israel. And his name is Gideon. And some of you know the story of Gideon. Some of you don't know the story of Gideon. Gideon, there's several different stories. We're going to take a look at one part of the story today as he stands strong in the face of, of, of a, a situation that he needed courage and he didn't rely on himself. He relied on God. Now, there's two things that you need to know about Gideon here and about the nation of Israel, the Jewish people during this period of time. Um, the first is, is that this was during a period of time where their greatest enemy actually um, took took them over and, and were oppressing them. Um, the nation of Israel has always and still does have a lot of different enemies, Egypt and uh, Syria and the Assyrians, and this is the Midianites. And the Midianites were uh, really known for their military uh, strategy. They had a very forward-thinking military strategy. Um, they were very strong uh, in terms of their military. They had a huge number of people in their military force. And so that's what they were known for. And they had come into the Jewish land and they had taken over and they really had the Jewish people under their thumb. They, they were oppressing them. And so you need to know that that was what was going on. But the second thing that you need to know today is that was happening because God allowed it to happen as a result of the nation of Israel turning their back on God. We were during a period of time when um, the nation of Israel would go back and forth, sometimes very quickly in terms of their faithfulness to God, and then in an instant they would be unfaithful to God. And often, here's how this went. Now, see if you can relate to the nation of Israel on this, because I can, okay? Here's how this would go. During periods of time when things were going really well, like they and God were really good, right? Like everything's going great, so... Their spiritual life, their, their faithfulness towards God, their time with him, their understanding was pretty good. It was during hard times when they would cry out to God and he would not give them the answer that they wanted. Or he might say, I'm going to give an answer later that they turn their back on God. And often what they would do is they would turn to other gods, small g, to try to find the strength and courage 
to stand strong during difficult times. Sound familiar? I know it does for me. Like when everything's going great, me and God are fine, right? Like he's taking care of everything. I'm happy with what he's doing. He is performing well for me. That's a pretty self-centered approach, isn't it? But that's what we often do, and that's what the nation of Israel was doing. And so they began worshiping other gods. They began relying on other gods. And so God essentially allowed this Midianite army to invade and oppress them. And so um, that's where we find uh, what we're going to take a look at today in Judges chapter 7. They were worshiping other gods. Now, Jared and Cooper, uh, both over the past few weeks, talked a little bit about Baal and the worship of Baal. And one of the gods that the Jews would often turn to, um, instead of the one true God that they were supposed to worship and that we worship here, they would turn to Baal. And so they turned to Baal in this instance. And God chose a really kind of unknown character um, as the next judge of Israel. And his name was Gideon. And he was chosen and he was kind of, kind of had this attitude of like, God, there's got to be somebody else other than me. Like, come on. There's, there's certainly somebody that's more experienced. There's certainly somebody that has a better voice. There's certainly somebody that has all these things going for them because I don't have much going for me. And God says, no, you're my man. And I'm going to lead you to victory. And I'm going to lead the nation of Israel to victory. And so he says, the first thing that you're going to do, though, is you're going to go in and you're going to take down these gods and you're going to destroy these gods that you're not supposed to be worshiping. Okay, so the Midianites are in control. This man named Gideon goes in and destroys the gods of the people that are oppressing the Jewish people. I mean, this was dangerous. He goes in and he takes down these gods and, and destroys this Baal and Asherah, the goddess of love, and he destroys it. And even the Jewish people looked at Gideon and went, what are you doing I mean, this is a political battle now. The people that are in charge of us, you've just destroyed their gods. Are you crazy? But Gideon was faithful to what God told him to do. What happened was, though, it really made the Midianites mad. And so the Midianites began to kind of collect their army. Um, most theologians believe that their army numbered in the hundreds of thousands. It was a huge army. And so we're going to take a look today at uh, chapter 7. We're going to read several different passages from chapter 7 and, and find out what God does, what he asks Gideon to do, and how the nation of Israel responded. Take a look at verse 1 of chapter 7. Then Jerubbabel, I'm going to say Gideon because, you know, that's just easier to say, all right? Because his name was Gideon. And all the people, by the way, Jerubbabel meet, meant is a name that God gave him to cast down Baal. All right, isn't that cool? Anyway, and so Gideon, cool to me. Okay, anyway, and that is Gideon. And all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Medina um, was, uh, Midian, I'm sorry, was in the north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the, the people with you are too many for me to give you the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Let's stop there for a moment. This is just verse 2, right out of the gates. Here's what God said to Gideon. Your army is way too large. So if you have victory with this large army over the Midianites, my fear is, Gideon, that you and the Jewish people are going to take credit for the victory. I'm going to make you victorious. He had confirmed that several times with Gideon. God said several times he's going to make him victorious. And he says, but your army is currently too large. Too large. Doesn't make sense, does it? 
Not a whole lot? Okay, so let's keep on reading and see what God does here. Your army's too large, essentially, is what he's saying. You're going to take the credit for it, but my own hand has saved you. Verse 3, now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned. That's a lot of people that are afraid, isn't it? It'd be interesting if there was a list somewhere like, oh, man, did my name get on the list? I don't want to be on that list, man. I want to be on the next list. 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. So his army began at 32,000 and now it's down to 10,000, Gideon's army. Okay, take a look at verse 4. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still, what? Too many. Like, Wait a minute, God. Hang on just a second. You're telling me you want me to go to battle with... 32,000, you're saying that's too many. We dropped it by 22,000. Now we have 10,000, and you're saying that's too many? And the Midianite army has 100,000? Really? This is what you're going to do, God? Okay. So he listens. The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say, uh, uh, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. Verse 5, so he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. So God essentially says to Gideon, I'm going to have you separate these people into two different groups. And one group, the one group that goes down and takes the water from the river and drinks like this, you need to set aside on one side. The other ones that go down and kneel down and get their face down in the water and drink like this, you need to set them aside. And so this army is set into two sections, right? Now, if I'm getting at this point, I'm like, okay, so probably about half of the people will do one thing and half will do the other. And either way, I probably have about 5,000 men to fight this horrible you know, war, this horrible battle that we're going to have to fight against the Midianite army. That's not the way it worked out, is it? 300. Take a look at verse 6. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, by the way, with the water in their hands, looking out for any potential danger that might come their way while they're drinking water, was how many? 300. 300. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink with their faces in the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you. Yeah, Right, God. Really? 300 people against 100,000 potentially? I don't know about this. I will save you and I will give the Midianites into your hands and let the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and trumpets and he sent all the rest of the Israelite men to his tent but retained the 300 men and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Okay, so you get the picture that like this camp of the Midianites is down in the valley and instead of having 32,000 men to fight this battle, rather than having 22,000 people or uh, 10,000 people to fight this battle, um, he has... 300. This doesn't look good. And if you continue to read in verses 16 through 18, you're going to read God's battle plan, which consisted of this, not one offensive weapon. God wanted them to take these jars that in them had a lit torch and their trumpets. And God told Gideon, just do what I say. Not one offensive weapon. Okay. This strategy is probably not taught at West Point. You know, like 
This is not like a battle plan that you're probably going to see if you're at a military college. This is uncommon. God is asking Gideon to do something that is absolutely almost seems ridiculous. It almost seems ridiculous. Take a look at verse 19. Find out what happens. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had uh, just set the watch. It's in the middle of the night. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies, by the way, Gideon separated the three into three groups of 100, and he commanded one of those uh, companies. Uh, Then the three companies blew the trumpets, broke the jars. They held in their left arms the torches, and in their right the trumpets to blow, and they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out, and they fled. They cried out, and they fled. When they blew, verse 22, when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword, talking about the Midianites, set every man's sword against his comrade and against all in the army. So this ridiculous request that God made in the face of the the greatest fear that these people could have and their strongest enemy worked. It worked. It seemed ridiculous. It seemed uncommon. And then we read that um, Gideon and his army chased them back to the east as far as they could go back to the east. They were out of the land. And Gideon had the victory. And the Jewish people had the victory. And so we see that Gideon and the Jewish people in this instance, in the face of a strong fear, And a formidable enemy, the greatest enemy. They trusted God and they followed God's lead. But there's one other thing they did. Take a look at chapter 8, verses 1, 2, and 3. I love this. This is so interesting in so many ways. Then the men of uh, Ephraim, that's another tribe of of Jewish people, um, said to Gideon, What is this that you have done to us, Gideon? You went and fought these people, and you did not call us when you went to fight against Midian. So all of a sudden, of course, in the face of this great victory that he's had, he's got his own blood brothers that are essentially criticizing the way he went about it. That happens in leadership sometimes, doesn't it? That happens when you choose to follow God and other people are saying, yeah, but there's a better way. There was a better way. There is a better way. There's a a better plan here than God's plan. Sometimes you're going to face criticism. Look at his response. He essentially says this, and they accused him fiercely. Verse 2, he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes in Ephraim better than the grape harvest in Abzer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison to you? Like, what would you have done differently? 300 men defeated an army of 100,000. Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. And in this instance, what he does is essentially he gives God the glory for the victory. We've talked a lot 
about a lot of different aspects about courage over these past few weeks. But I want to drive home this point today. I want to kind of drive home the fact that you and I are going to have strong fears. We're going to have enemies that seem insurmountable. But the courage to stand strong in the face of our greatest fears and strongest enemies will come down to us trusting God's plan, following his leading, and giving him the credit for the victory. The courage to stand against your greatest fear, whatever that is, and we'll talk about that in a moment, and against your strongest enemy is really not going to come down to much more than that. Than trusting his plan. That's what Gideon and the Jewish army did. They followed his leading, even though it seemed ridiculous. They followed God's instructions. And when it was all said and done, they gave him the victory. They gave God the victory. He led them to victory. You and I may not face enemies and have fears like those patriots of the late 1700s. We certainly aren't facing an army like the Midian army, are we? But you and I have fear, and you and I have enemies, and often they coexist, don't they? Often, whatever our enemy is, or whoever our enemy is, is the thing that bubbles up the greatest fear in our lives. And for some of you, it may be a person or it may be people. But my guess is, is that for most of us in this room, it's some of those intangible things. Like insecurity. Like fear of the future. Like wondering if the finances are going to add up or not. Like wondering what your kids are going to become in the future. Perhaps you have a family member who you want so badly to restore that relationship with, but they have become your greatest enemy. And it's the fear of a family being torn apart. Or maybe today you're in here and you're like, you know, my greatest enemy, they're my kids. Or maybe it's a brother or sister, or maybe it's a spouse. You and I face fear, and we face enemy, and it's different from what it was back then. It may be different than it was uh, several hundred years ago, but I got to tell you, the way that we respond in our spiritual lives can be exactly the same, and it's really a choice between two things. In the face of our greatest fears, in the face of our strongest enemies, we can choose to rely on ourselves. We can choose to rely on our intellect. We can choose to rely on pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps and just being strong. wisdom of the day or some kind of book that somebody gave us that doesn't line itself up with the word of God, it will lead to defeat in some form or fashion. But if you and I make the decision that we are going to let self-reliance go and we're going to totally or 
victory is ours. Victory will happen. I, I know for me, over these past few years, um, some of my greatest fears are, I'm, hey, I'm a guy who's 42 years old. I, I fear failure. I do. I, I fear feel fear of criticism. Sometimes my own enemy is myself. Insecurity. I would imagine that you have strong fears and you have enemies that seem insurmountable. And I want to encourage you today that you have a choice. You and I both have a choice. And I want to encourage you today, if you're here and you're a Christ follower, man, choose reliance on God. Trust him, follow him, and then give to him the glory for the victory. That declaration of independence started with when in the course of human events, and it went on to list all the things that King George was doing to the colonists that were wrong. But it ends this way. And I want to read it to you, and it'll be on the screens. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, that's God, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. My question today doesn't have anything to do with our country. Although there's a lot of implications, right? My question is for you today, for you and for me. Are you fully reliant on providence? Are you fully reliant on God? Or are you going your own way to overcome your greatest fear and your strongest enemy? Choose God. It will lead to victory. Father God, thank you so much for this story. God, I thank you for this country that we live in that this morning gave us a great illustration of courage in the midst of strong fear and great enemies. But God, I thank you also for Gideon and those 300 men that didn't do anything special. There wasn't an offensive weapon among them. All they did was to simply follow you to trust you and they were determined to give you the glory when it was over and God today I want to I want to pray for those who are in here that they're faced with some strong fears or they're, they're faced with some of their greatest fears right now and they're faced with some strong enemies with every head bowed and every eye closed if you're here today and you say Todd I need to be prayed for because I need the courage to stand up against some of my greatest fears and strongest enemies. If you're in here today and you say, hey, just pray for me, Todd. I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand. I won't, call, I won't call you out or anything. Just raise your hand. Keep them up for a moment. Keep them up. Awesome. All over the room. Anyone else? Just keep them up for a moment. I just want to pray for you for a second. God, I pray for those who are raising their hands right now. And whether it's financial or whether it's future or whether it's worry or insecurity or God, whether it's a relational issue, God, I pray in the strong name of Jesus that you would give them the power, not on their own strength, but on you to trust you and to follow you closely. And God, then to give you the glory when they see victory in their lives. And I pray this in the strong and mighty and powerful name of Jesus for those who have their hands raised this morning. You can put them down. You can put them down. And God, I just want to pray for those who maybe came in here today and uh, they don't know you as their Savior. They've never put their faith for eternity, for heaven, in you. If 
you're here today and you've never put your faith for where you're going to go when you die in the hands of Jesus, I want to let you know that um, God sent his son, Jesus, um, to die on a cross, not just to be the hero, but he did it for you because he loved humanity enough there had to be a sacrifice, and he was that sacrifice. And maybe today, um, your greatest fear and your strongest enemy is death. Like, death is terrifying to you because you don't know where you're going. Well, the Bible says that you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if you believe in Jesus, God's Son, that he died for your sins, that they're covered that you can have eternity with God in heaven when you die. And so if you're here today and you want to accept Jesus as your Savior, I'm just going to pray a prayer out loud. You can pray it quietly in your heart. It goes like this. God, thank you for making me and loving me and dying for me. And today I realize that I've got stuff in my life that will keep me from you. But today, I put my trust in you for my greatest fear, which is death. And today, I believe. If you're in here with every head bowed and every eye closed and you prayed that prayer, just raise your hand. I want to pray for you as well. Just raise your hand. Awesome. Anyone else today? Just raise your hand. If you raised your hand, look up at me for a moment. I just want to encourage you to um, put your name down on the bottom of that card at the bottom of your worship folder today, okay? Let us know about your decision so that we can follow up with you. I want to personally follow up with you. God, thank you for what you did today. Thank you so much that you didn't leave us um, when you died on the cross and three days later you went back to be with heaven with God. You didn't leave us with nothing. You left, you left us with your Holy Spirit who we can rely on to stand strong when we need courage. And I pray that you would help us to rely on you and your Holy Spirit to do that. In Jesus' name.